Welcome to the Infinite Spark of Being podcast. My name is Keith Welsh, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking to you about God, uh, my personal feelings on the topic, and how they've evolved over time. But before we get into all that, if you'd like to support this thing that we call the Infinite Spark of Being and all that that entails, you can do that at theinfinitesparkofbeing.com, where you can find links to the books, t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, art prints, as well as a link to the Patreon page where you can pledge $1 or $5 a month to the Infinite Spark of Being. Also, if you are in the South Florida area, I will be talking and teaching every other Saturday evening from 6.30 to 8 p.m. starting on December 4th at the Metaphysical Healing Institute of Palm Beach. Uh, That will be free to attend. However, donations via Venmo are always welcome. There'll be more on that the night of. But like I said, it is free to attend. No pressure. So here we are. God, let's get started. So this topic of God is going to be very interesting to navigate. Um, Most people have pretty hard and fast ideas about what or who God is. So like most of the episodes we do here, let's start with some definitions. Um, Let's start with the word God uh, and what that means in Christianity. In Christianity, God means the creator and ruler of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. And that's not much different than anyone else's version. Other definitions of God are superhuman being or uh, spirits worshipped as having power over nature or human fortunes, a deity. So this is going to be interesting. Uh, It's an interesting dissection here, and I hope that it helps to maybe move you along your journey since the idea of God tends to be a real sticking point or a point of conflict in the minds of Most folks along the path, I know it was a real sticky thing for me to deal with. So this is really kind of tricky. It's the concept of God that I'm trying to talk about. It's a lot. So this might not be very linear. Uh, So please bear with me, but let's start with the word who, W-H-O, oddly enough. Um, In most cultures, people regard God as a who. And this is interesting because, because the word who means what or which person or people. Um, A person is a human being regarded as an individual, and the word people means human beings in general or considered collectively. So we pretty much have our first snag right there. Is God a person? Is God a human being? Well, a lot of cultures would say yes. Um, Mormons, for instance, believe that Elohim was a human that ascended to godhood. Uh, Jesus was God in human form. Um, it, it's these sorts of things. So, so it's not you know insane that people believe God was a human. Um, in fact, a lot of people, when talking about God, whether they believe it was a person or not, kind of describe God as a who, and even give God human features like an ego. They don't think they're giving God an ego, but they are. They're giving God emotions as well, which are evolutionary and have everything to do with biology. 
So what's implied is that God is this supernatural entity somehow using powers beyond our comprehension manages to embody a human for what seems to be the purpose of correcting human behavior. Well, I personally find that very interesting. Well, um, in Hinduism or what's known as Sanatana Dharma, the belief is that during times of irreligiousness or adharma, the opposite of dharma, dharma, the closest English translation would be right living, uh, the aspect of God that sustains life known as Vishnu takes birth in human form, Krishna, Ram, in order to right the ship. There are many incarnations of Vishnu. Uh, people believe that Buddha was an incarnation of Vishnu, and uh, some people believe uh, Jesus was that as well. So when I look back over history, I find this idea very interesting, you know, being that these figures pop up kind of at those times. So... Uh, so God is also considered an entity by a lot of people. You hear them refer to God as an entity. The word entity means a thing with distinct and independent existence. Again, bear with me while we break some of this down. Um, while God might be distinct to the senses, right? The word independent and the word existence are kind of going to be a problem. Why? Because existence only happens with an objective being. And the word independent, well, according to most texts, we are not independent of God. In fact, most faithful believers, regardless of the tradition, would say that God is omnipresent. Omnipresent means widely or constantly encountered, common or widespread. That's interesting to me. We've all heard folks say God is in all things. In fact, all of these texts indicate, if not outright say, that we are part and parcel of God. Um, remember, in the Vedic model, the human form recognizes its identity as Atman or soul, and Atman or soul recognizes its identity as Paramatman or Brahma or God. So, so where does God stop and start? When is God completely unrelated to what's happening? Is God ever out of the picture? Well, if God is omnipresent, the answer is no. Right? And you see where this starts to fold, or religion anyway, starts to fold in on itself. And when it does, cultures have to start introducing these new characters into the story in order to make sense of certain aspects of life, like bad things, death, stuff we don't understand. You know. Now, real quick, my intention here with this episode isn't to disprove God. I have my own beliefs, and we'll get into that later, but my intention is to get us to at least think about God. Um, I believe that once we can get rid of everything that God is not, i.e. who and you know these sorts of things, then hopefully we can see or feel what God might be. Um, I don't believe that we get to the bottom of these things by fucking around and dancing around things. We have to cut through them or at least attempt to. We have to take it apart, set it on fire, and see what's left. So to recap real quick, the word who would have to do with being a human. And uh, we can all agree that, that God is not a biological entity or a human. I wouldn't even say God is a supernatural entity based off of what entity means. 
I think we can all agree on that. Maybe. I don't know. Now, this calls into question, of course, male and female ideas. And even if we are talking about male and female energy, which we are, right? It's energy. God would possess both, theoretically, right? Otherwise, if God isn't both, we have duality. And duality is related to the reality testing feature of the human ego. We live and think in duality because of the ego. Uh, reality testing means that when you pinch a chair or another person, you don't feel it because you are in some ways separate in human form from the thing or the person. So by these metrics, God can't have an ego either. God is not a person. God does not have an ego. So God is not a who. Who and these things, they become conceptual. So I'm sure that someone somewhere is saying that this is beyond my understanding and that God can do anything God wants. Well, in my opinion, that starts to sound like children playing a game where there's always a convenient solution to each problem. And maybe there is, but all of this becomes all too convenient and gets weaponized by people whose identity and purpose are tangled up in their perception and belief of God or in God. So... Anyway, we know God can't be a who. Uh, Can God have an identity? This is another interesting question. Identities are relative and conceptual. Does God having an identity, does that ring true for you? Really? Like identity comes with a self-concept. Self-concept being who you believe you are based on the responses you get from others. Does that sound right? Does that sound right through the lens of the mysticism of a higher power? That God has an ego, a self... It just all starts to sound ridiculous to me. I mean, sure, God, whatever we're addressing as God, has an identity, but it's only to us. It's us. It's our personal identity for that thing. And that identity is relative and conceptual. It's unique to the bhakti, the devotee, the disciple, whatever. So, you know, even though we all pretty much read the same stories, it touches us all differently because we're all experiencing God through our minds. Remember that judgment, perception, consciousness, language, memory, and thinking, the six cognitive faculties, right? Um, I'm starting to feel like I'm beating this to death. And... Um, but I believe that I'm getting my point across, so maybe I'll stop. Anyway, <laughs> um, now if you go back to those episodes on allegory, um, two and a half or three, you'll recall me saying something about people take these texts literally and they miss a uh, the deeper meanings. They they miss the real juice of the thing. I believe that taking the character of God in these books as literal shorts us on what God could be. Um, They're a framework. They're an ego structure. They're somebody else's framework. Um, they're, They're a caricature of God, a character being a picture, description, or imitation of a person in which certain striking characters characteristics are exaggerated in order to create a comic or grotesque effect. Obviously, the descriptions aren't exactly comical, 
but hopefully you get the point I'm making that it's kind of a caricature of God. Very interesting. I mean, often these descriptions of God are what that particular culture finds appealing in a leader or a father. So, so you do see some exaggerations, right? Especially in the Abrahamic religions. I mean, turning Lot's wife into a pillar of salt seems a bit much. I mean, I get it. You're jealous. You're a jealous God, but God damn it, right? No pun intended. Anyway, um, you know, if you really want to have some fun, Google, uh, you can find these people trying to explain how scientifically and why scientifically this actually happened, right? It, it will definitely make a case for my allegory and, and show that some of these folks might be missing a beautiful teaching because they are so fucking concerned with making real things or making things real and making them literal and proving how a woman could actually become a pillar of salt. You're missing the point, right? You're caught up in the, in the metaphysics. There's a great talk by um, Father Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan. He, it's called uh, How Buddha Made Me a Better Christian. And he talks about this. He talks about the West needing to understand the mysticism of it and how the East was like, look, the mysticism will always be there. We have to understand the mind. Like, how do you know what you know? It's a very interesting talk. It's very short. I highly recommend that you look it up. But he talks about being in seminary and then pushing these Eastern texts on him. And he's like, I don't care about that. I just want to understand essentially the mysticism of God. Anyway. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that alone. Anyway, I'm sure I mentioned this in the allegory episodes, but... Uh, the way to read these these books um, is to simply read it as a story at first. Then, with you know proper guidance, uh, read it as an allegory. Read it a few times as an allegory. In fact, that's where these books really come to life. Some of you read these books one time and you leave them alone. Do you really think you got everything out of that reading at one time? Do you really believe that? You know, that's where when you read these things multiple times, that's where you can see them as living texts. You know, like I've heard, I've heard this before when it comes to the Bible, the fucking constitution, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, we've heard that, that they're living documents. They're seen as living or alive due to the fact that as we learn, the more information that is added to the mind the more our consciousness shifts or changes. As consciousness changes, our subconscious mind starts to show us things differently. Our, our, our operating system starts to evolve. It's really cool. Um, and not to drift back into allegory, though by now you can see the importance of allegory. When, when I first took the Bhagavad Gita as strictly literal and saw Krishna as a man that lived and was an incarnation of Vishnu, I, I would read and understand the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita in a certain way when I believed it to be literal. And I kind of got lost in trying to figure out these events, like if they were real and if these people existed in history or not. Like, even when I just shut the search down, right? There was still a piece in the back of my mind that was a bit concerned with it. 
as if, you know what, it was like if I could prove it and find this historical link, then it validated me and it validated my beliefs, right? And as a human being, that's part of nature. That's only natural, right? So for instance, um, I remember part of my doubt in the Christian faith came from learning about the history of the churches, reading the Nag Hammadi library and learning about the canonization of the Bible, learning about uh, the various beliefs and myths about Jesus. This stuff caused me a lot of questioning. In fact, it caused me a lot of discomfort and a lot of pain as well. Um, When you have... You know what? I I can't say that I had faith. I was just scared to not have faith. Think about that. Some of you know what that means. You were scared not to have faith. You were afraid not to believe. And all of this pushing and pulling and doubt creates a lot of pain. It's fascinating shit. So um, finally, this leads me to discuss my own journey with God. So Um, As I mentioned before, reading a book by A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada and then learning about Sanatana Dharma, specifically Vaishnavism, led me to learn a bit more about the timeline of religions on earth. I wanted to, sorry, understand the history of God. How did we get here? How did we get to lakes of fire and all this shit? I specifically remember having this thought and these words go through my head. This was as a kid going, if we're dealing with the metaphysical, why are we talking about lakes of fire and gold, right? So I took my Christian understanding of God and applied it to my understanding of Krishna. And this obviously created the same problems I had as as a Christian. It just created them in this other thing. I, I was... I was still not being taught the allegory of these things, nor was it even being discussed. It wasn't even part of the discussion. I can say that Lama Lohsan at least taught different ways. Anyway, so every time I tried to devote myself to a system, I found myself in a box. And every time I found myself in a box, my experiences would, they'd push against the sides of the box. And you know, I was running into the I was running into the problems with the metaphysics of God, regardless of the system. Whether it was Christianity, Hare Krishna, it doesn't matter. It was it was like you know what it felt like? It felt like I got really engrossed in a movie, right? And I've suspended my disbelief and just gone with it, right? But then halfway through the damn film, something too outrageous happens and it and it loses me for a bit. Well, instead of it being one scene of a movie, um, what I was finding with these devotional systems was that it would ramp up more and more. It was like the deeper you went, the more ridiculous it got, right? The more questions you asked, the more, or the worse the answers got, or the more ridiculous the answers got. And again, I found myself spending too much time and thought over the metaphysics. It was ridiculous. So I found myself... What I had, the problems I had with Jesus and the Christian idea of God, I just brought it to Krishna. It was the same thing. Well, um, about that time, the opportunity to, you know, when I feel that I was at a point where I just couldn't fuck with this anymore, an opportunity to study Buddhism with a qualified teacher presented itself. So I more or less put my dealings with God 
uh, which were always vacillating anyway, on hold for a while and just dove into the Karmakagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And during that time, I really stopped concerning myself with God. It had nothing to do with Buddhism, so I just put it away. I shut things off in my mind that were spiritually pulling my attention away from understanding Buddhism, which is ultimately not about understanding, you know, sutras and texts and memorizing, memorizing sadhanas and prostrating a hundred thousand times, but more about understanding the mind. That's what it always comes down to is understanding the mind. Now, at first, what's talked about is understanding the nature of reality. But what we find is that reality is the mind. We, we start out thinking that, that this is all outside of us and that we need, to, we need to access some special something in order to give us whatever, a, a happy life, bliss, who knows. But what I found was that the moment that I asked Lama Losang, what is this? And he said, the mind. We only experience the mind. I found that that was the key. Right then, it was really just that simple. The root of suffering and dissatisfaction is grasping and clinging, and we mitigate that suffering or possibly bring an end to that suffering and dissatisfaction by working with the mind. Then the one tweak that, that I'd add is that we then realize, not just know, but deeply realize that we are not the mind. We don't grasp and cling. The mind grasps and clings. After that, there's nothing left to do but really just to watch. So how does this get me back to God? Well, during all this heady and at times overly intellectual Buddhist stuff, Krishna, well, um, there was something still deeply connected, I guess. It was like the Maha Mantra was still playing somewhere in the background. In fact, I remember someone bringing a Bhagavad Gita that they had just been given by a Hare Krishna devotee on the street into the shrine room once. Uh, they were being kind of shitty about it. They were kind of making fun of it, you know, as were others in the room. And it really bugged me. I felt defensive. And I asked if they'd read it. And they said no. And I just said, interesting. I just turned around, but I never forgot that. I can still feel a bit of a sting there. Anyway, I don't know if that's just anything, but... Uh, something was still there and it wasn't the Christian lens that I had viewed God through previously as a kid. It was the lens of Krishna. It was just, it, that understanding still had me. It's that simple. You know, it's interesting because it's so hard to explain this stuff, but Prabhupada would say, uh, chant Hare Krishna 16 rounds every day for 30 days, like 16 rounds around a 108, you know, mala string for 30 days and then your life will change. Well, it did. And it was definitely in my bones at that point. I, it's hard to explain. Again, I, I don't know. Things did change. Something had me, had me deeply and it, it still does. So after some time, it was like something in me knew that now that I had an understanding of how the mind works, let's look at God again. And that happened after reading a book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. So 
If I look at this Vedic model of our spiritual anatomy, I understand it like this. There is a soul, a subtle body, and a material body, right? The subtle body is the interface between soul and the material body. The subtle body is the mind, the karma, the work, the curriculum. And this is interesting because the world, uh, stimuli, or experience is all interpreted through the mind. It happens through the mind. So when Lama Losan said, this is the mind, I now understood or understand what that meant. And this is why Buddha was so keen on us understanding the nature of the mind. The thinking in Buddhism, or at least for some, is that A, God doesn't matter because if you're using the mind to perceive or conceptualize God, then we're going to have a real problem, right? And B, ultimately, we merge back into source, white light, clear light mind, or dharmakaya. So if we're doing the work, we just go back into source anyway. Meaning that if at the time of birth, we have let go of our attachments you know, to this is and that's, and then there's nothing else for the mind to do. And the whole thing just merges and, and goes home. And that's it. Even the soul dissolves at that point. But um, in the meantime, <laughs> where does God fit in, right? Some of you might be wondering what the point in God might be after all of that. Like, why bother if we're just trying to cut to the chase anyhow? Well, this is where my personal belief and my understanding of God comes in. I'll start by saying this. The mind uses symbols to tell the body how to feel. On one hand, I use the idea of God as a symbol. Um, I use it in the way that one might use a certain deity, self-created or otherwise, in something like chaos magic. It gives my mind a reference, and the reference I feel closest to is Krishna. Um, and to open up a bit, a bit more than usual, when I say that, you know what, I really, even at work, I avoid God, <laughs> like the plague. But I just, because it's so much and it's so complicated, and it's so personal. But when I say the name Krishna, I feel very warm. It's in my heart. Um, there is a, there's, a, there's this prayer, um, and it's in a book called The Golden Volcano of Divine Love. It's a book about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who was considered to be uh, a combined incarnation of Radha and Krishna. And the prayer is, O Lord, when will tears flow from my eyes like waves and my voice tremble in ecstasy? When will the hairs on my body stand on end while chanting your holy name? So the first time I read that, I teared up. It was all I ever wanted. So the symbol, the visage of Krishna, Vishnu, and Narasimha, Krishna's uh, lion avatar, is how I see God. That's just the picture, right? That's the symbol. And depending on what I need depends on what image I hold in my mind or what I imagine with me, like literally with me. So that's how I deal with God visually. Um, now, what I also understand about God is that I'm part and parcel of God. Um, God is within and without. 
God is omnipresent and doesn't stop just shy of my body, my thoughts, or the things that I do. And it's not in, it's not exclusive to me, you know, like it's it's you too. So let's go back to that Vedic idea of the spiritual anatomy. If it's the job or duty of the human to realize its true identity as the self with a capital S, the soul or Atman rather, then the duty of the soul or Atman to remember its identity as Param Atman or God, then it stands to reason based on those parameters that the mind, the karma, uh, the work is in fact holy and connected to God. Your mind is the work and it is connected to God. In, in my understanding, God is the source, the cause of all causes and the fountainhead of everything. It's not a thinking conscious whatever, right? And that's ultimately me. You are me and I am you, fingers on a hand. You know, and I like the way Alan Watts puts it. He'd, he'd say something about God getting lost on purpose in, in this far out adventure. And, and I like that. God playing hide and go seek with itself. Um, and all, <laughs> there's a song by um, Ravi Shankar called Prabhuji. Uh, Prabhu means master. Ji means like, it's like term of respect in Sanskrit. Um, the first time I heard it, this song made me cry. It was at a time where I was chanting and chanting and chanting. My life was fucking sad. It was my first marriage and it was a fucking mess. If you're listening, I'm sorry. It was. I wasn't great either. Fucking believe me. But it just pulled, that song just pulled those tears out of me. And I didn't know, I didn't even know the fucking words. It wasn't in English, but it broke me down. Then, you know, after I heard a few times, I read the translation. It was everything I felt at that time. And the words in English are, Oh, master, show me some compassion. Wait, no. Oh, master, show some compassion on me. Please come and dwell in my heart because without you, it is painfully lonely. Fill this empty pot with the nectar of love. I do not know any tantra, mantra, or ritualistic worship. I know and believe only in you. I have been searching for you all over the world. Please come and hold my hand now. That was everything to me. That was how I felt. I was doing everything I could. I just wanted the experience Arjuna had in the Gita. And this is why that prayer that I read in that book, The Golden Volcano of Divine Love, touched me so much. It was just like the song. It was the same plea where we are practically begging Krishna for something. You know, we just, I don't even know why. I think like for me, like I was just so fucking sad. You know, I was chanting and chanting and chanting and I have these experiences, these unity consciousness experiences and I've described them before, but then they'd end and I'd go crazy trying to recreate them. You know, they talk about this sadness that can wash over you from chanting so much. And I definitely felt that at times. But this was where I was uh, before I met Lama Losan, before the study of the mind and its nature. Um, it helped me a lot. So 
that confusion with God was a thing. And then Buddhism kind of helped me understand my mind so that I could see God differently, understand the idea of God differently. So uh, the mala, japa, chanting, kirtan, my belief, and this is my unquantifiable belief, it is... It's, I believe that these things are ancient methods that millions of others have done with the same intention as me, and I've done them millions of times before in other births. You know, there's a belief in Buddhism that if you find yourself there on these paths, it's because you have a connection to the practice, and that's why it's important to keep pictures, tonkas, statues around you so that you'll remember them in the next birth and pick up where you left off. But... That belief is interesting to me. It's very interesting. And again, it's just a belief. I just can't explain why I feel the way I do. Nothing really happened to push me in this direction. I just read one book and bam, that was it. Right? That's just how it happens. So back to the allegory real quick. Let's look at these prayers and songs through the lens of allegory. If God, Master, Krishna, whatever, is my higher self, and the reference in these songs and poems is an allegory for the higher self, then I can see it all as a plea to my lower self to get out of the way. Let me connect with what I am, even if it's only for a minute. So for me, chanting keeps a foot in the absolute. Without that, I become painfully lonely, as it says in Ravi Shankar's Prabhuji. So I work with God on multiple planes, multiple levels. And like I've said before, these practices, these beliefs often require us to hold two opposing points of view in the mind at the same time. You got to learn to do it. So that's it for God. I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to have to listen back to this. I'll probably just release it because... I don't know. I hope it was helpful. I hope that you found this beneficial. And as usual, if you have questions, um, comments, or suggestions, reach out. You know I'll respond. I always do. And as I mentioned before, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of the Infinite Spark of Being in all of its facets, please do that at theinfinitesparkofbeing.com, where there is a link to the Patreon. And in that link, uh, and that, on that site, rather, you can find links to the books and other merch like shirts, tank tops, posters. And as usual, don't forget, you can always reach out. Please reach out. Talk to me. We're old friends. Don't be weird about it. 